Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. And I want to echo what Pastor Ted said, that it is, it is always good to see all of you here. And we are excited to be able to come and gather as the family of God together to be able to worship the Lord together. And so if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you have, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the epistle of 1 John. 1 John, today we're going to pick up the very last verse of chapter 3 and then work down through verse 6 of chapter 4 in 1 John. And while you're turning there, I think all of us would readily admit and we would acknowledge that it is of tremendous value to know who your friends are. And it is of equal value to know who your enemies are. Nowhere has that been more obvious throughout the ages than in military conflicts where for centuries flags and banners and insignia and uniforms have allowed adversaries to be able to distinguish who their allies are and, and who might have less than friendly intentions. The question that comes to my mind though is what about those times when making that distinction is hard, even nigh on to impossible? This week I read something that intrigued me I read about the fact that by the time that World War II was in full swing, that various aircraft being flown by all the different sides had been developed to the point where they were flown at very, very high altitudes and they were also flown at, at very high speeds. And while that sounds great if you're the pilot of that plane, it's not so great if you're the guy manning the radar system on the ground. You see, attempting to try to determine if an aircraft is friend or foe is nigh on impossible when the aircraft is flying at super high speeds and at super high altitudes. In fact, when they do that, the, the, the aircraft really just sort of show up as indistinguishable blips on the radar, making them virtually impossible to distinguish. As a result, what took place in World War II was that there were many inadvertently, or in, many of the friendly aircraft were inadvertently shot down due to a lack of proper recognition. And consequently, there was a system that was developed, a system called the IFF system. And IFF stands for Identification, Friend, or Foe. And that system was developed in order to allow for, for aircraft to be distinguished as to whether or not they were, they were friendly or whether or not they were uh, one, the ones that posed a threat. And I won't bore you with all the technical details, but when that system was developed in its infancy, infancy stage, the, the basic uh, premise of that system was that on the ground there would be an interrogator. That was, that was what it was called. It was, a, it was a piece of equipment that was an interrogator. And that interrogator would send a signal that would, would spit a signal out to that approaching aircraft. And when that aircraft received that, it would either respond back with an appropriate response, and at which time it would be deemed to be a friendly aircraft, or it would send no response back at all, and those on the ground would determine that it was that of a foe. What I want you to know this morning is that in our passage from 1 John, we are going to see how in John's epistle, he puts his, order, his, his, his own sort of IFF system in place. And he does that so that true believers, true children of God, those who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and are abiding in Him and He in them, they will be able to distinguish who is friend or who is foe. As we will see, John emphasizes just how important 
It is for us to be able to identify those forces that pose a threat to us and would seek to do us harm. And as Gary Burge has written in his commentary on this passage, John calls us to build a Christian maturity that can use theological radar to spot intruders who want to upend the church's beliefs. This high-tech radar system can tell the difference between pleasure aircraft and lethal bombers. It can tell the difference between minor issues and colossal errors that deserve a fierce struggle. That's what we're going to see in our text this morning. So let's begin reading by reading in, in verse 24 of chapter 3, God's holy word this morning. There, the, the apostle writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, and he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we come before you today uh, thankful that we have this opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to read your Holy Word and then to allow your Spirit who authored this Word to then begin to apply it to our lives. Help us to understand it. Help us to be able to discern the truth that is there and then help us to be able to live out this truth in our daily life. This is what we pray because we want to continue to be conformed in the image of your Son. And we know that the Spirit was sent so that he might point us to Christ and that his work in our lives is there that he might continue to transform us into that same image. So we pray that that would take place as a result of the time that we spend this morning investigating your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll know that, that we uh, came to understand that in the last passage that John wrote to us, that he was, he was continuing to urge us as his readers into loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a major theme throughout the book of 1 John. And, and he's going to continue to hammer that point home to us. As we learned last week, we, true brotherly Christian love expressed in actions, in deeds, not just in words, not just in thought, but actually in, in, in word, in, in, in actual doing of things for others that are our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a way that we can assure our hearts before God. It's a way that we can know for sure that we belong to Him and that He is our Father. As a matter of fact, you remember that we looked last week at one of the primary reasons we know that is because what John writes at the end of this book, he tells us the reason that he wrote the book to begin with, according to 1 John 5, verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know 
that you have eternal life. And then he says, and that you continue to believe in the Son of God. And I find that very interesting that, that when John outlines his purpose for writing this book, he not only tells us that he wants to provide us with, with assurance of our salvation and, and assurance that, that we are in Christ, but he also wants to make sure that we continue in our faith in Christ. He doesn't want to see us getting knocked off track as others have been knocked off track. And evidently, those are part of that church that in Ephesus to whom he was writing had experienced just exactly that. Evidently, John knew how easily that could happen, especially in light of the fact that there were evil forces constantly seeking to attack the church and to undermine the faith. In fact, later on in chapter 5, verse 19, as we will study later, but today just listen to this. He writes, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. As Martin Lloyd-Jones has written, one of John's primary objectives in this letter is to help and to comfort and to encourage these Christians who are living their Christian lives in such a difficult and opposing world. I believe that's what makes this epistle so applicable to us today. I believe that, that not only was it something that was directly applicable in John's day, but it's directly applicable in our day because we too live in a world that continues to be under the sway of the wicked one. We too need to be comforted and helped and encouraged just as those first century churches did, especially during weeks like the one we've experienced this week. I, like many of you, have found myself tremendously saddened and heartbroken by the unrest that we have seen on display in our nation this week. People are scared, people are angry. Many are discouraged. As John says, the wicked one or the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, under the power of the wicked one. They seek to do us harm. And friends, I want you to know this. What I am assured of is that the gospel is the only hope for this world. I'm convinced that it is only through the faithful proclamation that Jesus Christ has willingly and sacrificially laid down his life so that all men, women, boys and girls of every ethnicity, of every skin color, of every nation, of every language, and of every tribe might receive the free gift of God's salvation and forgiveness of their sins. And it will only be through the demonstration of that gospel, of the sacrificial love that Jesus has shown to us and that John has been commending to us. It will only be when we demonstrate that love to our brothers and sisters that the world will stand up and take notice and say there's something different about believers. They've got something that the rest of the world does not have. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that all lines of demarcation have been completely eradicated in the cross of Christ. When we stand at that need and at that foot of His cross, we all recognize that apart from Him, we are total sinners and lacking of anything worthy of His love. 
And it is only because he has demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died in our place. And when we come to the recognition of the gospel, that then makes us recognize that it does not matter who we are. We are image bearers of God and Christ has come to save us. And we need to recognize that and demonstrate that love toward one another because it is only through the gospel that there is salvation. It is only through the gospel that there is hope. It is only through the gospel that there is forgiveness. And it is only through the gospel that there is healing. And our world needs that today more than it ever has. And in this epistle that we've been studying, John reminds us of all of those things. And he reminds us that in this world we live, we have adversaries that are constantly going to be opposed to us. But he also tells us that we have a friend, and not just any friend, but a friend with a capital F. Notice what he says in verse 24. This verse could have easily been a part of the last section, but I chose to allow it to be a part of this section this week because notice what he says. He assures us of our relationship that we have with God because he says, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him, and by this we know he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. According to what John says here and in the previous passages in this epistle, True and genuine children of God will remain. They will abide in the Father. In fact, in previous passages that we've studied in 1 John already, John has told us that remaining or abiding in God involves loving one's brother or sister in Christ. It involves doing the will of God, as we've seen. It involves honoring that which was given to us, the message that we have had from the beginning that's been passed down. That also involves abiding in God. And then as he says here in verse 24, in very plain language, he says it means doing the commandments, keeping his commandments. But what I want you to notice that all of the weight does not fall and rest just on our shoulders. Yes, the definitive responsibility set out for the child of God is to behave in a certain manner. It's to live out and to demonstrate the validity of their faith to a lost and a dying world. But also notice that John speaks of a mutual abiding. He talks about God abiding with us. Not just that we abide with Him, but that He abides with us. We abide with Him and we prove it by how we live. That's what He's been telling us. But then He says, but God abides with us. And listen to how He proves it. He has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. The Spirit whom He has given us testifies to the fact that we are children of God. This is exactly what Jesus promised would take place in John chapter 14. In John 14 verses 13 and following, He says this, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's the demonstration of who we are in Christ. We demonstrate that to the world and to Him by keeping His commandments. But then He says this, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, and that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, and He dwells with you and will be in you. Friend, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the promise of Christ Himself. And what Jesus promised and what John writes about here in his epistle confirms the same thing. In fact, it leads me to the first point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. The first one on your outline is this. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the divine proof to those who truly belong to the community of faith. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the divine proof given to those who truly belong to the community of faith. That's what John is telling us here. 
As we've seen, it's what Jesus promised. It's also what the Apostle Paul wrote about. He wrote about it in a number of places. He wrote about it quite extensively in Romans chapter 8. But more succinctly, he said this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes this, he says, In Christ you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Friend, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's the seal of promise. It is the guarantee. It is the divine proof given to those who truly belong to the community of faith. And that's the first thing that John tells us in this text. And it's an important thing that we understand. But I want you to know it raises a significant question. It, it brings up a significant issue to us as we read it, and I, no doubt to those who were, who were there in that first century church to whom he writes. Because... What are we to do? What are we to do when, when, when someone who comes along and they claim to have faith in Christ and they claim to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and they claim to be energized by the Spirit, but they come along and they begin teaching new and unorthodox things? Are we just to swallow anything and everything that comes from someone who, who puts it out in front of us indiscriminately? Are we just to simply believe everything that we're told because we are commanded to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that, that love believes all things, does that mean that when, when someone comes along and claims to be a brother and sister, we just believe them indiscriminately of what they say? Is that what we're supposed to do? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's not what Paul meant, by the way, when he wrote that love believes all things. That's not the context of what he's writing about there. And we can know that because of what, he write, what John writes here in 1 John. We compare Scripture against Scripture and we realize that can't be what Paul is writing about because John very explicitly tells us here that we are not to just believe anything that comes our way. In fact, what he says, not everyone who comes speaking on behalf of God actually is doing that. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. He tells those who abide in Christ and those who Christ abides in, he gives us two commandments. He gives us two words of command in verse 1. He says, first, don't believe every spirit. And the second command, he says, test the spirits. Now let me give you the Craig paraphrase of that. The Craig's paraphrase is this. Do not be gullible, but be discerning. Do not be gullible, be discerning. Why? Well, because John tells us that not every spirit is of God. He says there's many false prophets who have gone out into the world. Notice that John connects false prophets to spirits whom he connects to the Antichrist. He, he makes no bones about drawing the line that you can see where they come from. They become mouthpieces for spirits whose origin and whose, whose lineage comes from the Antichrist. And as Karen Jobes has put it, to speak falsely in God's name is to locate oneself in the world. And that world is, as we've already seen, is a world that is diametrically opposed to the truth of God and the things about God. 
Once again, as we've seen in other places, John displays his propensity to, to actually talk in terms of opposites. He, he leaves no room for gray. Everything is black and white in his mind. And he makes clear in verse 6, there is only one spirit of truth and there is only one spirit of error. And everybody falls into one of those two categories. If it's spirit that's speaking, it can only come from one of those two sources, either the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. It will either be the spirit of Christ that indwells a genuine believer or it will be the spirit of antichrist that energizes false prophets. So how are we to know which one is which? When we're there and someone begins to talk to us, how are we supposed to know if they're friend or foe? What is, what is John's IFF system? Well, it's really very simple and it comes in two parts. Notice the first part. In verses 2 and 3, it tells us this. Notice the second point on your outline. The second point this morning is this. Those who claim to teach spiritual truth must be evaluated based upon what they teach about Jesus Christ. Those who claim to teach spiritual truth must be evaluated based upon what they teach about Jesus Christ. Just as the military's IFF system utilizes an interrogator to determine whether approaching aircraft are friend or foe, well, John says that believers must also be interrogators of sorts and must ask certain questions regarding those who claim spiritual authority. And what should be the basis of our interrogation? Well, I like how Douglas Sean O'Donnell has put it. He's written this. He says, if false teachers look and sound genuine, as Jesus said they would according to Matthew 7, verse 15, and if they often introduce their destructive heresies shrewdly and secretly, as Peter says they do in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, then how does one tell the sheep from wolves that are in sheep's clothing? Well, you tell by listening to their Christology. You tell by listening to what they say about Christ. Notice that John says in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Well, by what? By this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Christ, not confess Jesus, is not of God. Now, there's a textual variant there. When I read earlier, I read from the New King James... And in, in the New King James, verse 3 is almost just the exact opposite of verse 2. Those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. The earliest manuscripts that we have is a little shorter version of that and basically says those who do not confess Jesus is not of God. I want you to know that difference between those two manuscripts between verse 3 of the New King James and verse 3 of the NIV or the ESV does not change this test at all. In fact, we can learn exactly what he wants us to learn about this IFF test from what he tells us in verse 2. And that change is basically this. The confession that John says is the test is that the man Jesus of Nazareth is himself none other than the incarnate Christ and Son of God. To confess something means that you agree with somebody about something. And so here he says, to confess Jesus, what are we to confess? Well, we are confessing, we are saying that we agree with Jesus about what he says about himself and about what his apostles, whom he commissioned to tell the story of the good news of the gospel, what they say with regarding who Jesus is. To confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh is to agree with the testimony of Scripture. Listen, Jesus was not two different entities. He was one being with two distinct, coexistent, eternal natures. He is divine and he is 
human. He is eternal son of God who at a specific point in time without ever ceasing to be fully God became fully man. That's the significance of the, present ten, of, of the perfect tense verb when it says Jesus has come in the flesh. It means that he was fully God, but there was a point in time when he came and became a man. And because it is perfect tense, as we've already learned in Greek, that means that it carries a continual emphasis the rest of, the, uh, rest of, of eternity. It means that that means he is, he is still the God-man now, and he will eternally be the God-man. And that is precisely what John meant in his gospel when he wrote the preamble in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It does not say the Word was a God. There is no, there is no a God there. He was God. He is eternal from the beginning with God. He goes on later down in chapter 1, verse 14 to say this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What John is claiming and what he clearly states to us as an apostle commissioned by Christ is this. He was the eternal pre-existent God who came in the flesh and has become man. And that, brothers and sisters, is what incarnational Christology is all about. And that's why theology matters. I want you to know it matters what we believe. It matters what these scriptures say. Because when you diverge off of that and you trace a different line, you come up with a Jesus that's altogether different from what the Bible claims and teaches us about. And he has already told us back in verse 23 of chapter 3, he says this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Basically what He's doing here is telling us this is the Jesus Christ you're to believe on. It's not someone that's been made up by someone else. This is how you determine truth. He is Jesus Christ. He is fully God. He is fully man. And as a result, that's why Paul can write what he writes to Timothy. He says, for there is one mediator, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus alone was the only one who could lay his hand on sinful humanity and lay his hand on the perfect holy God and be able to be the bridge between the two that draws them together to be reconciled. Our only hope is that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. And that's what this verse reveals to us here. And that's why the incarnation is such a foundational issue. As John Stott has written, the fundamental Christian doctrine which can never be compromised is the eternal divine human person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what John tells us is if somebody comes along, and they tell you something different from that, and they preach about a Jesus who doesn't fall into this category, then the test that we have to apply is this, what do they teach about Jesus Christ? And if it does not adhere to what Jesus has claimed about himself and what the Holy Scriptures testify to, then you can determine right away that spirit is not from God. It has to be from the Antichrist, which John says you've already heard was coming and is now in the world. So that's the first part of the IFF test. What do they believe about Christ? What do they teach about Christ? But notice there's a second part. The third point on your outline this morning is this. Those who claim to teach spiritual truth must be evaluated based upon those who believe and follow their message. 
It's not just that you evaluate the teacher's message, but it's also that you evaluate what the world thinks about their message. That's what we find in verses 4 through 6. But before we get to that, there's a, there's a word of encouragement here in verse 4. There was a word of encouragement back in verse 24, right? We have, we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us, and that, that's something of great encouragement to all of us. Well, here's what I want you to know is that verse 4 tells us it's not just to assure us of our salvation, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit tells us something else. He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, what he says is the Spirit of God that lives within every genuine believer, that Spirit will guide the believer increasingly into truth. As Greg Allen has put it, he says the Spirit's ministry in us ensures that we will never be ultimately overcome by the false teachers and the false prophets that are active in this world. Why? Is it because we're so smart? No, but it's because we're trusting in Christ. We're trusting in the Spirit that He has given us. That's why he wrote back in 1 John verse two, chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. He says, listen, these things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. I want to I expose those who are deceiving you. But the anointing which you have received abides in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. You don't need to work, be concerned about these new doctrines. You've got that which has been given and passed down through the ages. It's yours. And you have the Holy Spirit that testifies to that truth. And therefore, you can be assured that you will not be led. I, I, read, I read a story this week about the U.S. Navy. They had a, a submarine called the Thresher. It was 1963. It went out on a test run. And the nuclear submarine, the, the engines failed. And it could not get back to the surface. And as those failures, those engines can just continue... All of a sudden, there were 129 people that continued to sink lower and lower and lower into the ocean, and eventually, they sunk all the way down, and, and, and the pressure of the ocean just crushed the bulkhead of that submarine, and it tragically killed all 129 on board as it went all the way to the, the bottom of the ocean floor. The Navy searched for the thresher, and it had a research uh, craft that was much stronger than a submarine. It was shaped like a steel ball and it had a tether attached to it and it was dropped down in and there were searchers on that. And they dropped all the way to the ocean floor, 8,400 feet deep. That's about a mile and a half deep down in the ocean. Got down there and it found the submarine. It was crushed like an eggshell, basically like you would imagine something to look like like that, which was, which was not a surprise really because the pressure of at, at that depth is 3,600 pounds per square inch pushing in. Now that's, that's un unimaginable for me, but you know what else was unimaginable? They saw fish swimming at that depth. And here's the thing, the fish didn't have skin the, the, the depth of a bulkhead. It's just mere millimeters thick and these fish are swimming around a mile and a half deep in the ocean and the question becomes how can they do that how can they swim in that depth it was such pressure upon them the same pressure that, that just crushed a submarine and yet there's fish swimming well they have a secret these fish it's really not a secret it's actually physics the fish on the inside of them have a pressure that is pushing out at the same amount of the pressure that's pushing in so that they can swim around because they have an internal pressure pushing out of them. And I want you to know that is really good news if you're a fish swimming a mile and a half deep in the ocean. <laughs> what I also want you to know is that what John tells us here in verse 4, 
is even greater news for a Christian because we too live in a very high pressure environment in which we live. And John says, hey, don't worry. You've got a greater pressure inside of you that is exerting force on that that is pushing out. And you don't have to be concerned about all of that that's coming in on you. You need to be vigilant. You need to know what they look like. You need to be able to identify them. But brothers and sisters, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you can be encouraged today, especially in this high intensity, high pressure environment in which we live. But I want you to know, such is not the assurance of those who are not redeemed. In fact, verse 5 tells us that the false prophets that have gone out in the world, they are of the world. And then he says this, they speak as of the world and the world hears them. In other words, as Greg Allen has put it, to quote him again, false spiritual teachers tickle the ears of those who thrive on the values and the priorities of this world system. Their, their teaching advances the things of this world and the lives of those who hear them. In other words, their message basically says, look, just do and live however you want to live. You're the arbiter of what's right and wrong anyways. It's all up to you. There's really no objective truth. It's all subjective. And you can make it up as you go. Just live however you want to live. And oh, by the way, go chase after all the dreams that the world tells you is the things to chase after. Those will be the things that make you happy. So always try to get more material possessions and try to live more fun. Live for the gusto of life. That's what you ought to do. And listen, after all, you're really a little God yourself and you're just trying to get back to the big God. And so all of us are little gods. Listen, that's how cults start. And that's how they worm their way in. And that's how they use Jesus to promote themselves. And John says that's absolutely of the world and it's completely of the Antichrist. And don't you believe it? It's also why we can recognize that that message is so popular in our world today. On the other hand, verse 6, John says, we, and by this we, he's talking about himself and the other apostles. He says, we are of God, and he who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. And that may sound arrogant. It may sound like John stepping out there and poking his chest out going, y'all need to listen to me. But he was one who was commissioned by Jesus. He was one who walked with Jesus. And the only thing that he ever wrote was the things that Jesus had taught him. And he had been commissioned as the other apostles had been to declare that truth to others. So it's not an arrogant statement at all. It's a statement that lets you know where are the bounds that I can go to to find out what truth is. And brothers and sisters, the bounds are right here. This is what's been revealed to us. And so everything that we do, we measure against the truth of this Word. The world does not do that. And so consequently, we can evaluate those messages that are sent to us based upon how the world responds to the messages that are being preached. Jesus Himself said in John chapter 10, My sheep will hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. On the other hand, the doubting Jews who approached Him at that point, Jesus said to them, But you do not believe because you are not of My sheep. So those are the two parts. Those are the two parts of the test John says that we who are true children of God must apply to those who claim to teach spiritual truth. We must examine what they teach as it relates to the orthodox and consistent apostolic message of the scriptures concerning Christ. And then we must examine the ones who follow and listen to their message. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which I will be the first to admit is more like a paragraph in a sentence. But bear with me nonetheless. 
When confronted with people who claim to teach spiritual truth, those who belong to the community of faith because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling are to do two things. Examine the content of their message in light of the consistent and orthodox Christological Christology taught by the apostles and examine the character of the audience that listens to their message. Friend, John was concerned that there would be some charismatic leader or charismatic group of leaders that would come in and deceive the very elect if possible. He was concerned that they would come in and teach things that would draw them off track. And so consequently, he has written to expose their errors. He's written to assure them of their salvation. And he has written to show them this is how you can know. Because this is what he says. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that spirit is of God. If he doesn't confess that, he's of the Antichrist. And this is how you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.